one of the first things you have to do, start doing, is stop answering your own questions. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Ronin Leadership Podcast. Uh, it's Tuesday afternoon now here in Las Vegas, and uh, we're getting ready for a big windstorm, so we had to batten down the hatches a little bit, but uh, I think everything's going to be okay. Um, uh, thanks to all of you for uh, your comments, and we've, we've seen our, uh, our subscribership has really gone up uh, in the last uh, six months, so Thank you for that um, and appreciate all of your, your comments and telling your friends, family, even your enemies about the, the Ronan Leadership Podcast so you know, they can learn something from it as well. Um, of course, I always do the shameless plug. If you haven't done so already, please pick up a copy of my first book, The Art of Ronan Leadership, which was kind of a sort of my a journey, my macro level journey into leadership. And then based on uh, feedback that you've all given me, uh, if you get a chance, pick up my second book, The Art of Executing Ronan Leadership Strategies, which is more of a, a how-to, uh, how-to book. And, uh, you know, I just, I just appreciate all of you and uh, uh, for all that you have done to, to make this podcast uh, continue to be successful. Uh, today, I'm very happy uh, because I've got uh, my brother, a very good friend of mine, a colleague in the, in the security industry, Dave Commandant has uh, uh, graciously uh, accepted uh, our, uh, you know, our, our, our invitation to be on our podcast. Um, Dave just recently retired as uh, the chief security officer at Boeing, uh, a, uh, and he'll tell you more in more detail uh, uh, a position that he's had for many, many years. He's made quite the impact uh, in the security world, the security industry, the business world, because of his approach to leadership his story, how he treats people, um, and his strategic mindset that has enabled many organizations that he's been involved with to grow and to flourish and to thrive. And uh, so Dave, welcome uh, to the podcast. I'm glad we've got beautiful view out there, out there at Gig Harbor, Washington. So thank you for coming on board. Hey Mike, really, really appreciate the invite and have been looking forward to this for for quite some time, and it's a real honor to be here with with you. And I'm looking forward to the uh, the discussion today. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, as I begin with most most of the guests, anyway, um, can you tell the the audience a little bit about your background? Um, you know, you have a, you have a different background than a lot of us in the security industry who you know came from other places, right? Uh, law enforcement, military, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to get to where you are. So. Why don't you walk us through your journey? How did Dave Commandant start off his career, professional career, and how did you end up being the chief security officer of one of the biggest companies in the world? Well, I'll, I'll, before I tell the story, um, through a lot of luck, being at the right place at the right time, and quite honestly, having some people in my corner throughout the journey that maybe saw some things in me when I was a younger person that I didn't see it myself, at least not at that point and who pushed me and encouraged me to take some chances. But uh, in simplistic form, I uh, was going to school at Cal State Long Beach, was an athlete down there playing football, uh, was a business major at the time, had a serious knee injury, knew I was going to get an additional year of school, wasn't super excited about the business major tract, 
and took some different classes. And, and one of the classes I took was a, a criminal justice class. And I really found it meaningful and topical. And at the time, a Long Beach state had a, um, a full uh, curriculum on what was called industrial security. Hmm. And when you in the 80s, especially in Southern California, you had all the major aerospace corporations. This is all pre-merger. So you had a Lockheed, you had a Martin, you had a Northrop, you had a Grumman. You had all these companies <laughs> out there. So got into this track, and it was really focused on uh, working for a clear defense contractor, learning all about the classified world and the responsibilities companies had, and just found it super interesting. So uh, got an internship at Douglas Aircraft Company at the time, was able to go through an internship. They brought me on as a summer hire, and they had a retirement in the office, and I was uh, able to join as a full-time employee at Douglas Aircraft and for the first probably seven years of my career was really focused on the government classified programs, mm-hmm. kind of entry level position, security education, uh, audits, those types of things. But over time, responsibilities uh, increased and, and did a number of different things in that space. And uh, later in that time period, I had an opportunity at the time Boeing and McDonnell Douglas merged to uh, take an opportunity up here in the Puget Sound, came up here for just a brief stint uh, for a year. And during that year, learned that the corporate headquarters was going to move from Seattle to Chicago mm-hmm. and was asked of, of that team. And quite honestly, Mike, that's really when uh, my career kind of took off and the visibility on me personally. I was a new Boeing employee. I've been absorbed as a part of the Boeing merger was a part of a, a large security organization. And this had a lot of focus and attention on it and was sent back to ultimately Chicago where the new headquarters was based, was given the uh, role of uh, security director for corporate. I was not the chief security officer, but I had the corporate responsibility. And so uh, really had a lot of visibility for five consecutive years with all the senior leaders in the company. They were all based there had daily interaction with them. And in addition to the security responsibilities, I was given a lot of kind of and roles in the building. Mm -hmm. You think of a shared organization, which we were part of, not only security, but had IT, had facilities, had transportation, had the fitness centers, all different types of leadership opportunities, all different from what I'd ever done before. Um, But they were really broadening experiences for me because I dealt with a whole bunch of different people on a whole bunch of different issues every single day. And and I look back at that experience as as one of the biggest growth opportunities in my career because I got a lot of general management experience in that role. I was there for five years and uh, uh, the chief security officer at the time of Boeing had made the decision he was going to. So I was asked to come back to Seattle, um, took that opportunity had a year under him to kind of grow and develop and learn really what it took to do that job at a high level. That was Greg. And Is that Greg? Greg Wash, uh, another you know real icon in the security industry. And Greg took the time to really uh, mentor myself. And so Greg, uh, Greg departs in 2006, and a decision quickly is made that they're not going to have a chief security officer going forward. Hmm. And so um, for two years, Myself and another really excellent security leader, a gentleman by the name of Tim McQuiggan, co-led the security organization. 
Tim really focused on the defense side, the classified piece of our security business. I focused on all the rest. In 2008, the company made a decision that they really did want to kind of consolidate and have a one person in charge. And so uh, Tim and I uh, had the opportunity to compete for that role. And quite honestly, Mike, I think the reason I was ultimately selected was that general management experience that I got doing a lot mm-hmm. of different things at headquarters. If there was any differentiation at all, because quite honestly, I think Tim's way smarter than me. I think it was just the opportunity that I had done different things and I was able to maybe communicate how the chief security officer role really impacted other parts of the business. And, and the reason I knew that is because I had some of those other kind of responsibilities back at corporate. So I took on that role in 2008. Uh, the mandate I got from the time, uh, our chief financier, that's where our position reported up through, gentleman by the name of James Bell, uh, a really great leader. And, and James said, hey, um, you've got two missions. One is to make this the best organization it can be with inside of Boeing, to build a brand for Boeing security outside of the company. And so really for the first two years, um, it was head down uh, and looking in the organization and trying to uh, get some things going that, that need a little bit of help. Uh, we were going through some budgetary challenges at the time. That's right about when the economy took a turn. So unfortunately, I got my first taste of hmm. the brutal reality of laying people off and all the discomfort and pain that comes with impacting people's lives. Yeah. And once we got through that period um, and things were moving in the right direction, then I kind of looked outside of our organization. And, and Mike, that's really when I had the first opportunity to meet you and other senior security leaders like yourself in organizations like ISMA and OSAC, uh, DSAC, and get the opportunity to really, quite honestly, learn what it meant to be a chief security officer. And having those inter, uh, opportunities to interact with somebody like you that was local when you were at Microsoft and others in the area, and then when we would come together at these conferences, was really a growth opportunity for me. I realized the first time I went to one of those meetings, how much I didn't know yeah. and how inexperienced I really was. And so, um, you know, really throughout the rest of my career, it, it really was about learning how to be the best leader I could be and taking those snippets from people that I would come in contact with with these conferences or just relationships that were developed over time and try to incorporate those things that, that I could do, that things that were like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, that was really important. I, I saw a lot of leaders get up that did great things, but we were just really different. And I knew I could never replicate that style, that type of um, leadership mode with me. It just wasn't how I led or how I talked or how I thought. So I took those things that I could incorporate and, uh, and really over the last, you know, 15 years of my career, that was the important part of it was helping to develop the younger leaders in our organization to bring people up, to take a real hard look at the lack of diversity, not only in my organization, but within the security industry itself and try to figure out how could I be an ally and a change agent in that space. And so that's where the the time and focus really was spent. And I got to tell you, it went by really quick those last 15 years or so. 
And clearly there were all sorts of things that we went through as a company during that time. Our organization grew, it contracted, it grew again. I went through a succession of CEOs based on on some challenges that the Boeing company faced and having to learn their leadership styles and what they wanted or didn't want on the position. And last October, it was, you know, it was, it was time to go. I felt like the team was a great place. Um, I was ready to, to go on and work differently than I was working time. And so uh, it gave me an opportunity uh, when I retired to just step out and do some things that I've always wanted to do, but do them a little bit differently. So in a nutshell, that was uh, 36 years wrapped up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite, quite the journey. It's, it's interesting. You talk about back in, in Long Beach state, you know, I went to San Jose state and I remember like you, I was criminal justice major and you had three disciplines. You had, you had law enforcement, you had corrections and you had, you know, the industrial stuff. And I remember back then, most of us were in law enforcement. We'd say, hey, who wants to do that industrial stuff? You know, little did we know, right? Well, and, it's, and we the same thing in Long Beach. You know, you had uh, a, a police track, a forensics track, kind of a government agency track, and uh, an industry. And I just thought it was really fascinating. And, and you're right, early in my career, um, there weren't a lot of people that just came out of university and went into a security role and then ultimately got to a chief security officer role without having a background like yours, you know, that didn't come out of law enforcement. I have no law enforcement background. I have no um, federal government or intelligence agency background. And so when, when I first got into that role, I didn't necessarily feel part of the club because the mm-hmm. club was made of a lot of people like you that had agency backgrounds or State Department backgrounds or FBI backgrounds, wherever they came from. And there weren't a lot of us that had just kind of come up through the corporate ranks. And, and I always kind of thought, well, had I been disadvantaged by not going through that background? And over time, um, I, I realized, sure, there were some advantages to come out of these federal agencies. There are great relationships that are developed and um, great leadership skills that come along with coming out of one of those organizations. But when they would transition into a corporate environment, they would have to relearn everything because whatever um, kind of culture that existed at the FBI or CIA or State Department, that culture didn't exist at McDonnell Douglas or the Boeing Company or Microsoft or wherever they went out to work. And so they would, in many cases, have to relearn and readjust their leadership style. Um, I already understood the corporate side of it. What I had to be able to figure out is how could I build credibility um, in the halls of the FBI or with the CIA or some other place where a chief security officer really does need to have connectivity, really does need to be able to pick up the phone and have somebody answer them. And, and I guess, you know, as I ended my career, I realized that it was just as hard for both sets of people. Coming out of the federal law enforcement background or growing up in corporate, we were each faced with a challenge that was significant, but if you pursued it and put some effort into it, you could get to where you wanted to be and be successful. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent correct. I mean, uh, you said it earlier. I think all those experiences you had in the sh- sort of the shared services world really helped you. First of all, as you said, you know, get the job, I think uh, over, over, over your, your friend and competitor, but it also, you know, the, the challenges of someone like me coming from the USG into 
Microsoft where it's influenced without authority as opposed to the top-down structure I was used to, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> now we, we kind of unravel a little bit about your journey. So you, you know, you, you are now thrust into this role of, of running security for, for Boeing. And a, lot, a question a lot of people have is, and you kind of touched on a little bit, how do you approach strategy, right? I mean, you got to build a team, you, you know, bubble, you get the C-suite influence. And how did you approach or how do you approach when someone is like you taking over an organization? What are, what are the steps you look at? Uh, great question. I don't know if I've got a great answer for it, but I'll, I'll tell you kind of how I do it. I think everybody approaches strategy a little bit differently. And in full transparency, if I were to kind of Pareto out my skill sets of what I think I do really good, um, strategy is probably not in the top two or three. Hmm. And, and for that is there have been times, many times in my career where I'll get tactical. I'll see a problem and I want to dive right in and fix it. And I had to kind of teach myself <laughs> over time, quite frankly, um, I had to use mentors within my team and outside of my organization to help me slow something down or stop something and take a pause and really think about what are we trying to do here? How do we want to do it? Do we have the right people to do it? Do we have the right support and capabilities and resources? And if we do, then how are we going to go execute in a successful uh, manner? If we don't, how do we build and acquire all those things that we need to execute on the strategy successfully. So I would say that when I look at when I first started out in, in 2008, when I was the, the CSO to when I left in 2022, that strategic leadership piece was a journey. And I don't think I had reached the pinnacle of that. I think every day I was learning on how to be a better strategic leader. And I was blessed because I had some really talented people in that space on my team. Mm -hmm. I was blessed because colleagues like you, where I could pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing something, and here's kind of my thought process. What do you think? And to be able to have somebody like yourself and others that we both know that, that have that kind of experience and background to really give you a non-advocate perspective and say, I, I like that direction, but have you thought of X, Y, and Z? Because those are things that when I went through this, I experienced. Mm -hmm. And so I found really invaluable in helping me develop that tool set. And so I got better at it all the time. Um, but I, even at the end, I always felt like, man, I, I got to be better at this strategic piece. I need to think more. And, and the one thing that you used to do that I envied, and I was never able to replicate it, mainly because I think it scared me, is you always took carve time out of your day to think, to be intentional about thinking about what do you want to do next, whether it's with your team, with a, an issue you were facing. And, and I don't think, to be self-critical of myself, quite honestly, I don't think I did enough of that, and I don't think I did enough of that very well. Um, when the chips were down and I needed to come up with something, I could always do that. But I think where, where I missed the boat a little bit during my tenure was being more intentional about taking half of a Wednesday or half of a Thursday, not taking calls unless it was an emergency, not doing emails unless it was an emergency, 
and just think about what do we want to do next? Um, and, and I, I think that if I, if I were to go back and start all over again, knowing what I know today, I would start that from day one yeah. versus trying to add an add on, you know, 20 plus years in your career. So, um, it, it was an area where it's so important and I was blessed because I had people on my team that did think that way. And so I brought those people together with me and would leverage their skills and talents and we would work collaboratively. And in some ways um, that was a little bit of a win for me because those people knew that they had influence with me mm -hmm. and it gave them a sense that they were helping to set the strategic direction for the organization also that they were helping to run this, and it was a big organization, this big security organization. So where, where I might have failed a little bit, reaching into the team and pulling on people who I knew had that skill set, having them help me, I think that was a, uh, um, that was a good kind of supplement to, to help there. And it gave them a sense of ownership and a sense of, uh, hey, I, I really play a role in this organization, and he listens to me, and I'm helping to set the course going forward. So it was a trade-off that, um, in my case, worked pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, uh, everyone approaches strategy in a different manner, right? Uh, and what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another, but you can still get to the same, the same goals. Something that you – and I appreciate your transparency about that uh, – Something that you said kind of struck me because I think it's parallel to my experience. You know, I always said I could always figure things out, right? Got to Microsoft, I'll figure it out. But I didn't know Jack about the organization at large, Microsoft, right? And so my then boss, Charlie McNerney, gave me a mentor outside of my organization. And you mentioned uh, people that have helped influence you outside of the security organization, correct? Yeah, it, it was really important. Um, the one thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to run the security organization um, like any other business within the Boeing company. I wanted to sound the same. I wanted to have the same kind of charts. I wanted people. I wanted to demystify what we did, and, okay. and that was probably one of the took over from Greg there was a, a lack of understanding about what our organization did, the capabilities we had, the risks that we mitigated, um, the proactive nature of some of the programs that we had. And so that was, that was really important to me to be able to, to showcase that and be able to show what our people were doing. Mm -hmm. But I also out to peers, um, both senior to me and, and at the same level, and just really ask them about their leadership journeys and what worked for them and mistakes that they had made, how they had recovered from them. Uh, and that was always really important to me because I, I, I never felt like I had all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that any question I have, somebody in this company has done it and has an answer. And it, and it just was about being willing to pick up the phone and, and make yourself a little bit vulnerable and, call Mike Howard, the director of operations or whoever you were calling and to say, Hey, I need some help on this. I've never done it before. Or the last time I did it, I did it poorly. And I don't want to go down that path again. And I know that you do this on a regular basis. 
how would you do it and the why? And, and so throughout my career, whether it was my direct boss, someone else on my leadership team, and even subordinates. Um, I had a subordinate in my organization. Her name was Shelley O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And I first started at Douglas Aircraft as an intern. Mm-hmm. She was my intern manager. And then through several different roles in the organization, as I was progressing before I got into management, I actually worked for Shelley. And mm-hmm. um, because of health issues in her life and family choices she made, um, she had all the capability in the world. She probably could have been CSO easily, but she made the decision she was going to put family first. Um, but Shelly was always someone that I could call. She was not impressed with our org chart, mm-hmm. and she would tell exactly what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. And if And if something wasn't going well in the organization, and I had been led to believe maybe that it was going along smoothly, she would call me and say, this is a train wreck, or you didn't communicate effectively in this meeting, you probably need to do something different going forward. And so I valued that so much because I knew, first of all, she had my best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. She had the organization's best interest in heart because she had already intentionally put herself in a box that gave her the flexibility she wanted in her life. And so she felt very empowered to just say what needed to be said. And hundreds of times over the 30 plus years that I worked with her, she would be blunt and transparent with me, probably like nobody else in the organization. And so having people like that, that you can call upon, um, regardless of the level, because at times you need different inputs and, and different perspectives. But I think it's really, really important to have that. And I felt very lucky throughout my career. And they changed over time. People left, new people came in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I always had at least four or five people in the company that I felt like I could reach out at any time and say, I need help, or what do you think? And I would get the kind of input that I was seeking. Yeah, no, that's outstanding. Having someone like that give you honest feedback can be painful sometimes, but you, it, it definitely hit you in the right direction, right? And it was a lot of times, man, I got to tell you. But, but I think um, I always thrived on, I knew what I did well. I always wanted to know what my blind spots were. Mm-hmm. And so when people were willing to tell me what my blind spots were, that was golden to me. And, and like yourself, Mike, you, I know you guys would do this. You get your employee surveys every year, right? And give your team an opportunity to rate you and, you know, your organization. And we would get those surveys back. There was always be a lot of fanfare and to do about it at Boeing. And the first thing I would do was go to the comments section. Mm-hmm. And I would every single comment. And there were times where I would get, you know, a thousand different comments because the entire organization would tree up to me. And I wasn't really interested in the attaboy comments. I was interested in the you suck comments. Because yeah. I wanted you know, why did they feel that way? Was I not an effective communicator? Was I not transparent? Did I not execute on something? Did I break a commitment I made to a team or an organization that was part of my team? Those were the nuggets. Those were the important things to me. And that's where I spent my time and energy um, throughout the remainder of that 
year is to try to go back and how do I make these things better? How do I fix this situation? The other stuff is nice to hear, but quite honestly, it was not that valuable to me. It was the really painful stuff that was valuable. I think it's, I think this, that's really great for people who are listening to this podcast to, to hear you say that someone, you know, um, of your stature, someone who's gone through what you've gone through. Um, it's hard as a leader to be vulnerable and put your ego aside, you know, as you have to be able to get that kind of feedback and then actually do something about it. It doesn't happen all the time. Uh, we live in a world of type A personalities and it's like, you know, they don't want to hear the bad stuff. They just want to hear the good stuff. So I think it's important that you were able to uh, approach um, whatever negative or constructive feedback uh, in a way that would eventually up your gain because you took, you made a concerted effort to fix whatever needed to be fixed or improve whatever needed to be improved. Um, so that said, you, you, you've talked about different people on the team that have helped you out. Obviously your, your leadership team, however, your, your, every company slices a different way. You know, I had my leadership team and you have your leadership team. What were some of the main traits? You might've touched on some of them, but what are some of the main traits you're looking for? Because everyone thinks, or a lot of people think, oh, I can be in that position. I could be Mike's deputy or Dave's deputy or whatever. But that's not the case. You know, I know I'm looking for. What, what kind of things were you looking for as you were, and again, it morphs, like you said, you're forming your leadership team. Yeah, it was, um, and it was interesting early on because I inherited a leadership team, right? And, right. and in one case, uh, that leadership team, uh, the gentleman that I competed for the role with, Tim, was on that leadership team. So uh, the dynamics early on were interesting because first I was the youngest person on my leadership team mm -hmm. uh, by a city. And so I get this role. I have a peer competitor who didn't get the role, who was only gracious during the entire time. And then other leaders that had um, a lot of tenure that were pretty set in their ways and didn't necessarily see a need to change. And so that was kind of the dynamic when I took over. And uh, there were many times in that first year or so where I had to kind of hold my breath and count to 10 because um, I had people that were clearly going to get on the new train and they were supportive. They understood the direction we were going to go. And then I had people that weren't. And, and they took opposing views on just about everything we did. Hmm. And, and that in itself is not bad, but when it becomes, um, you know, they're just being um, um, obstinate, to be obstinate, then it becomes a detriment to the team. Mm -hmm. And so part of, part of that forming the team is forming the right team and and making sure that the people that are leading at the highest levels are people that understand the direction you want to go. They want to help get the organization there. They're not always going to agree on the direction, and you want that. Right. But they have to fundamentally buy into, this is where we're going to take the organization. And so for that first year, two years, um, we had to go through and kind of um, rebuild the leadership team. There were some people that I wanted to stay, and I made it very clear to them. There were other people that I, I was very honest with them, and I said, I, I don't think this is going to be a good fit for you 
and for me. And so let's think about a different opportunity for you and put you in a position where you're going to be more successful, either within the organization itself or outside the organization. And for the most part, we were pretty successful. In that. And then once, you know, once the team came together, I'm a very red type person. If we sit down and we got a problem and we need to make a decision, I'm going to make a decision. Mm. But the reality is I'm going to make that decision sometimes based on emotion. I might make it based on pressure that I'm feeling. So I wanted people that thought differently than me. I wanted people that were uh, maybe a little bit more intentional at times about listening to the problem and saying, yeah, that, that's an approach. We could do that, and that would work. But we could also consider going this direction, or we could also consider doing this. And, and that was really important to me because it would slow me down, especially in my early days as CSO, where you're trying to show that you belong in this position. You're trying to show that you can make sound decisions. And so you're trying to do some of that at pace and at speed that maybe um, for someone with the experience I had at that point was too fast. And so I wanted more tenured, more experienced people to be able to say, let's slow this train down. Let's pump the brakes a little bit. There's three other things we could do. Um, and that was invaluable to me throughout my career is having those kind of people on the team that would look at a problem very differently than I would look at. Mm -hmm. and, and towards the end of my career, it was always fun. I, I always knew the, the buzzwords were, hey, Dave, I'm sure you've already considered this, but <laughs> their way of saying you haven't considered this, but you should. But you should. And so <laughs> I wanted people like that on the team. I wanted to have a, a diversity of thought, yeah. diversity of experience on the team, because I always felt like in collaboration, we would always find the best path forward. And the one thing I, I really treasured about my leadership team is once we made a decision, um, everybody was on board. There was no guerrilla warfare, meaning mm -hmm. people didn't leave that room and then go out and kind of try to sabotage the decision. We had all those discussions in the room. Everybody had the opportunity to have their voice heard, have their perspective heard. Uh, but once we said, okay, we're going to go north, everybody needed to go north. And yeah. I was always really proud that the team would go north and they would do everything they could to execute and make sure we got to that direction. Yeah, I mean, it was good on you to to give everyone a voice uh, and knowing them knowing that if you felt that you were proven wrong in terms of your course, you were willing to course correct. You know, and I think that that means a lot to to teams uh, because they don't always see that. You know, they a lot of times they get oh, hey, give me your input, but then the boss is ready to make the decision no matter what your input is, right? Uh, and and Mike, that was a lesson I learned probably at the ten year mark of my CSO career, uh, a little bit earlier than that. We were going through annual performance reviews. And we had just started this kind of new process at Boeing called a stop, start, continue, mm -hmm. where when you were going to review, you would ask your subordinate, um, hey, what do you want me to stop doing? What do you want me to start doing? What do you want me to continue? 
And so the first time you go through this process, it's pretty awkward with people. You know, you get the, oh, gosh, boss, you're doing a great job. Oh, you don't need to do anything different, right? And so one of the coaching points that we were given when we were um, kind of first exposed to this was ask the question and then stop talking. Even mm-hmm. if there's a 30, 41-minute uncomfortable pause, create that trust and dialogue that your, your team knows that you really do want to hear their input. And so I, I was doing that with, uh, with one of my senior managers, a lady by the name of Pam Dost. And um, Pam was a, a very transparent leader. You always knew what was on her mind. And she would always call me chief. And she said, hey, chief, one of the first things you have to do, start doing, is stop answering your own questions. And she said, so staff meeting, what you'll do is you'll ask for everybody's input. And then before anybody gets a chance to say what their thought is, you'll give your perspective on what we should do. And she goes, have you ever noticed that nobody responds when you do that? (laughs) What you need to do is ask the question and then not say anything and let everybody have a voice and then weigh in at the end. And, you know, as simple as that is, Mike, it was like profound to me because I thought about it. and I'm like, you know what? I do that a lot. I have to stop doing that. Yeah. And, and so I, I started this practice and I, I maintained it to the day I walked out the door where I would ask a question and I would shut my mouth. And I can't tell you in how many all hands meetings or employee meetings where it might be me and 30 or 40 of the team. I might be out at site visiting and I would ask them what's not working in the organization. And I would stop talking. And 30 seconds would go by, 40 seconds would go by, a minute would go by. It would get uncomfortable in the room. <laughs> Some would finally raise their hand and say something. And we would have that dialogue back and forth. And it just took that one person to have the courage to take a chance to see if I was going to listen to their input or if I was going to defend it or minimize it, or was I going to accept it and then have a dialogue about it. And after one person would do that, hands would go up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we'd always run. And people would feel like, hey, that was, you know, you really listened, right? It was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. I wish I would have gotten it, you know, 20 years earlier. Because I know I had 20 years of probably doing the same thing at every level of leadership before I got to the CSO role. But it's little things like that that make you stop. I think if you're a good leader, make you stop and say, I've got to change it. I'm going to change it today. That's amazing. I and mean, that's a great leadership tip for anybody listening to this. I mean, how profound, like you said, was that one bit of feedback that course corrected you to a whole different plane when it came to your your leadership acumen or your leadership style, right? And also because that person had the courage to tell you that. Um, I think, um, at least in my perspective, the longer I stayed in a senior leadership position, mm-hmm. the clearer it became to me uh, what my role should be and how I should do it. Um, you know, we've all gone through a million different kind of leadership classes. And even when you go through your book, it really boils down to really basic and, and I always felt, especially towards the end of my career, the things that were most important were, first of all, be your authentic self. People see right through you. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I always felt like it's okay to show emotion and to let people see if you were hurting or you were struggling in a particular situation. Um, I felt it was wrong to be a robot. Um, people could better empathize with struggles and challenges and decisions you were making if they could see that they were impacting you. I think that was the first thing, was to be authentic. The second thing was be communicative. I I remember when I was not in any level of leadership and I was on the layoff list uh, at one point at Douglas Aircraft. We were going through a downsizing. And my boss had told me, hey, um, you know, you could be at risk here. And so I'm 26 years old. I've got a wife and two kids, and I'm wondering if I'm going to have a job. And I just remember, and I and I had a cubicle. I, I joke about this. I had the last cubicle before you entered the hallway to go into the restroom. So I would see everybody multiple times a day, right? They would all walk past me. And when times were good, everybody would stop by and chit-chat and how are things, how was your weekend? Well, I remember during this period when not only myself but others in the organization were at risk, People would kind of keep their head down. They would void you. They wouldn't make eye contact. And I would sit at my cubicle going, what do they know that I don't know? Why won't someone just talk to me and tell me what's going to happen? Good, bad, or indifferent. I don't care. Just let me know what's happening. And I always carried that with me. When I was um, in any level of leadership, I was going to communicate with my team. They were going to know everything that I knew that I could possibly share with them. And if somebody was at risk, I'd let them know, hey, Mike, through no fault of your own, through budget reductions, we're going to make some cuts, and we're going to take some cuts in your area, and there's a good chance that that you might not have a position here. Mm -hmm. And so I'm telling you today so that you can make – it's not a guarantee. There's a lot of things that can change, but I'm letting you know now so that you can make some decisions for yourself and that you're not caught off guard. And as hard as those discussions were, and sometimes initially people reacted really um, with anger and hurt and pain, all the natural reactions. But regardless of what the outcome was, a lot of times they came off the list, or even if they were finally um, uh, laid off, they would come back and they would say, you know, I don't agree with the decision, but I appreciated how you communicated with me. You know, I felt like you respected me enough to tell me what was going on. And I remember what it felt like to not be communicated with. And I never wanted to do that when I was in a leadership position. I I wanted to be transparent with people. And then for me, the final was always about being respectful. Mm -hmm. Um, People would kind of sometimes, especially at the lower levels, they would almost be starstruck. They were going to come into your office or you responded to one of their emails or you called on them in all hands meeting. And I would remind people all the time, I wasn't born a vice president. I started out an entry level secure. Well, actually I started out as an intern. Um, And the internship program in those days was not like how we treat interns at all these companies today, where they're like division one athletes, right? Like (laughs) and dime. There were many days where I was in a file room or, or in a storage closet organizing Sharpies by color and stuff like that. That's what I was doing as part of my internship. Um, but I always, I always wanted people to feel respected because I had the opportunity to progress to a lot of different levels into a management job. And I knew how difficult some of these jobs were 
and what it took to do some of them. And so I always wanted people to feel like I had empathy for them and that I understood what it took for them to do what they did. And, and so, you know, respect, being your authentic self and being an honest communicator to me, if you can do those three things pretty well, you can be a heck of a leader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are hard situations, uh, which begs the question, uh, because I, I love your approach. You know, there's been a lot of horror stories recently. I, I think I wrote a blog article on it about a week ago about how people are getting laid off in companies nowadays. I mean, it's impersonal. They find out through Twitter or they, they find out when their card access doesn't work or a friend of mine just found out, you know, about a week or two weeks ago at Microsoft to log in on a Teams meeting and then they were told, right? Um, I think that's the coward's way out. Um, I think people need to be, you know, told face to face with a real life human being. Uh, but you face that obviously a lot of times at, at Boeing or enough times to know that, you know, what's, what's probably the right way to treat people. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And I think that, um, you know, anytime you're in a senior leadership position, uh, you're going to have to go execute on a company strategy. And, and every company goes through great times and every company goes through difficult times. And, if you're blessed enough to go through your entire career and not have to lay someone off, hmm. um, more power to you. I was not in that position. I went through five major layoffs during my 14-year tenure. And to me, there was nothing more gut-wrenching because the reality is you're playing God at that point, right? Every company has a process that you go through to determine what positions are going to be downsized. And you get to a point where you achieve the, and I always hated this, you know, you had to get to a number, yeah. those number people, and those people had families, they had personal situations they had medical issues, and you would get to that number, and then it was time to have the discussion. And, you know, those were the things that I agonized over. And I, and I can remember a couple situations where, we had to do something like that. Um, it might've been kind of a special project. We were moving work someplace, the jobs weren't gonna follow, uh, but we weren't allowed at that point to talk to anybody. And, and quite honestly, I struggled with that immensely because I always felt like if we're gonna impact somebody's life, then, then we owe them um, you know, information to allow them to make the right decision for themselves. And we owe it to them at the earliest possible moment. And I think there's nothing worse, and I was put in this position a couple times, where you're telling somebody something on a Friday and you're executing on it within weeks, within several weeks. And the reality is, you know, they're going to be in shock for the first week trying to figure out what am I going to do, right? Yeah. And um, I would just encourage any leader out there that, that has to go through these kind of um, downsizing situations to be as um, as transparent as you can be, as empathetic as you can be, but also share the information at the first opportunity. And I know, you know, the HR people and the legal people are going to say, oh, no, you can't say anything. And I'm not encouraging you to break any company rule, right. but I'm encouraging, encouraging people to sit back and think about if you were the person on the other side of that chair and that information is being delivered to you, 
when would you want to know about it? So, yeah. you know, there are ways you can communicate. Um, but I think it, it's really imperative that you're honest with people and you give them that first opportunity to know that this may not go in your favor. So start thinking about what you might want to do. Or I know we've got work in a different part of the company. I'm going to start making calls on your behalf right now. Would you be willing to do that? And that's part of it too. You know, people will always make a personal choice. They may not want to work on a lateral role. Sometimes there's a position they could step down a level and move back into. Right. Um, for some people, that's okay. For other people, that's not okay. But I think as long as people see that you are really trying to help them, at the end of the day, they respect you for that. And, yeah. and, and they, they will walk away knowing that you did your best to help them. Yeah. No, amen to that. Um... Yeah, you, you have to, people have to have hope, you know, yeah. uh, they have to have hope uh, that things will eventually get better, even though it looks pretty bleak right now. Um, it's interesting when you look at your career, so very successful at Boeing, but then there's this other aspect of Dave Commandant's career. There's the, the industry aspect, right? Now, I thought I really got involved in the industry. I mean, you took it on steroids. I mean, you got involved in a lot of different organizations and a lot of leadership positions. Uh, I guess two questions. One, what made you go down that path? Uh, and two, what are the benefits that you accrued uh, as a leader for being part of different industry organizations? Uh, what, what could you glean for those that you could bring back to your day job at, uh, at Boeing? Yeah, really, really good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for it, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot. I think was the mandate I got from James Bell, and that was to build a brand outside of the Boeing security organization. And, and we had kind of disappeared in some ways from a visibility perspective and things like OSAC. A DSAC was just kicking off. Mm -hmm. uh, is my uh, but we weren't part of it. And so part of this early on was just to get my foot in the door and to kind of check the box for my, my big boss <laughs> that we were out there and, and, you know, the Boeing name was, was in these certain organizations. But like anything else, over time, you get put on a committee and uh, at some point you become a committee chair and then you maybe, you know, move from the committee chair into the executive working group of one of these organizations. And, and those things happen. Um, you know, whether it was ISMA, uh, OSAC, DSAC. And I think the benefit of doing something like that, especially for someone like myself, again, no federal law enforcement background, was the connectivity it would, would help build between DSAC. Now you're being exposed to really senior leadership in the FBI. Mm -hmm. You're getting to meet all the executive assistant directors, the director. Um, within OSAC, you're getting to meet just tons and tons of people, not only within the private sector security community, but in the faith-based security community, academia, NGOs. And, and it just opens so many more doors and ideas for yourself. And, and it's fun. You know, uh, you, you sell yourself short on this, Mike, but I think most people know you played a key role in a lot of these, uh, these organizations, too. And I think you would agree, it's the relationships that you build, the connectivity that you build, 
And all of those have a benefit back to your home company. When the chips are down and something goes wrong, your network of people that you can reach out to and seek guidance from or pick up the phone and say, hey, what's going on here, expands tenfold. Mm-hmm. And that's valuable. That, that, those relationships, you can't put a price on that. You know, for the money you pay to be an ISMA member or the time you might spend three or four times a year going back to Washington, D.C. for an OSAC meeting or a DSAC meeting, pays for itself thousands and thousands and thousands of times over mm-hmm. with information and accessibility that you wouldn't have. And quite honestly, I've met some of the best people in the world uh, by being part of these organizations. It's fun. Uh, they're fun. And I believe in the missions. Yeah. And so, you know, once you kind of get involved and you get the opportunity to start moving up the food chain a little bit, it's it really becomes a lot of fun and there's a lot of energy in it and um, and you see the value that these organizations bring not only to your own company but to the country and the work that gets done there so so that was always something that um, I prided myself upon there were a couple times uh, where I was probably a little bit um, over leveraged in regards to multiple things going on <laughs> at the same didn't I didn't sit down and make- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I talked about this. There were a couple of periods of time where, um, where I was in leadership roles in multiple organizations concurrently. And so I think the advice to anybody out there is if you're going to go down that path, and I really encourage you to do that because I think the benefits are fantastic, it's, you know, be thoughtful, be strategic in your sequencing. If you're going to be an officer in one of these organizations and that officer position ultimately leads to you're going to run the organization three years from now, you might want to make sure that if you're an officer in another organization that you're not going to have concurrent tenures. That can get to be a little bit much. And and that did happen to me. It was not insurmountable, but um, in in full transparency, I, I think that when you're leading one of these organizations, whether you're a committee chair, you're an executive working group, is you want to bring the very best you that you can bring. You want to give that organization everything you can give. And so you want to be careful about maybe overextending yourself because everybody's going to suffer a little bit. Everybody's mm-hmm. not going to of you because there's not enough to go around. That was a, a lesson learned that, that I had and something as I you know kind of moved into a I'll call it a quasi-retirement, that I've been much more what do I want to do, who do I want to do it for, and how much time do I want to spend doing it to make sure that that you don't get caught in a position where um, people feel like they're not getting the whole you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's well said. I was kind of in the same boat on a smaller scale, but uh, I agree. You know, the benefits of being part of these organizations is invaluable. A um, couple more questions and then we can wrap it up. Um, you and I have both been in very stressful professions, rewarding in many respects, but stressful. So in your tenure, how did Dave come and not, you know, deal with stress? I mean, how, how, what are the things that you do to make sure that this job is as, as encompassing as it can be was not the end all and be all of Dave Commandant's yeah. persona. Yeah, I, I think, and 
you know, Mike, you're accurate. Every chief security officer um, faces different challenges in their tenure at their companies, depending on the type of work that the company does, where they have people based. Um, you know, I just had some really horrible things happen to um, employees during my tenure. Uh, we had people that died during 9-11. Um, the flight that went in the Pentagon, we had three employees on that flight. I lost three employees on a Turkish air crash uh, as they were coming home from a, a work assignment. Um, had some horrific industrial accidents at the time. And all the other things that happened at a, at a big corporation. And so you do get exposed to some things that are um, really pretty gut-wrenching at times, really pretty stressful. Uh, some of them um, happen and they're done quickly. Others happen and they go on for a really long time. Mm. And so um, how you deal with those stressors, I think everybody deals with them differently. Uh, for the most part, I think I did a fairly good job. If my wife Kelly were in here, she would laugh at that comment and say, mm. you're crazy. But but there are a couple things that, that I think were important. One, um, I've always looked at fitness, physical fitness, as mental fitness also. Meaning, no matter what was going on, if I could go out and um, run on the treadmill, walk, lift weights, ride the Peloton bike, um, do something that would, um, you know, really kind of tax me physically, it always helped me with the mental aspect of it. No matter how bad something was, I felt like my battery recharged enough to where I could continue to deal with that issue in a healthy way. And mm -hmm. I think that's the key is, is trying to create a healthy outlet uh, for those kind of stressors. So, you know, physical fitness was always one for me that was tried and true. And I knew I could go do that and I would immediately feel better and I would have a clear perspective. Um, secondly was sharing, um, sharing with my spouse, sharing with my family, the things that were appropriate. Um, letting them know what was going on at work because clearly you would come home and you would be different. And that different could be, you might be short with somebody, you might be quiet, uh, you might be inattentive. Mm -hmm. And so being transparent enough where they knew, hey, something's going on with dad or something's going on with my spouse here and sharing as much as you could that was appropriate. Um, I think if you're spiritual, um, being able to, to lean on that and ask for help and ask for guidance. Uh, and then finally is, is reaching out to friends and colleagues and being able to say, hey, I'm having a really hard time with this. You know, I don't know if I'm handling this right or I have to have this really difficult discussion. Um, how would you approach something like that? And, and, and I always felt like I could pick up the phone and call you or others like you and get, um, first of all, empathy and understanding because you've been through something similar in your career. So you could understand where I was at and be able to offer me tools that would help me deal with it. So any one of those, you know, there are four things in that toolbox. And in different cases, you know, you might be more reliant on one than the other. But between those four, um, I could handle that. And if worse came to worse, uh, a large pepperoni and mushroom pizza and uh, four or five beers with what all <laughs> or a nice thing of bourbon maybe or something you yeah, know. yeah yeah <laughs> if all else failed, you had to pull the stress button uh, <laughs> any of those were pretty but, uh, yeah. but uh, you know obviously as you get older you can't do that as often either because you pay the price physically for that but 
Right. But sure, any one of those, um, you're going to have those moments if you're in a senior security leadership role in any major corporation. Bad things happen, and and they happen with enough frequency where you, you need to have good coping skills to be able to mitigate that stress, or the job can kill you, and you, you yeah. don't want that to happen. No, no, those are great, great points, and anybody's listening you're going through some stressful times, uh, take heed of what Dave said. And you're right about, you know, having people you can rely on. I mean, there was a certain point in my time when you were the, I was going through some hard times and you were the first one to come reach out to me and tell me that, you know, if I needed any help. And that always meant a lot to me. And so I always remember that. Um, I guess the last question before we wrap it up is, you know, in our particular industry, but I think this transcends not just, it transcends the security industry. So the whole idea for every, ever since we've been on board is, okay, how do you show value add to the C-suite? How do you become a business enabler? You know, all the buzzwords, you know, see it at the table. Um, from your optic, if you take our industry writ large, do you think we've moved the dial uh, to any great extent that we're getting traction and are you hopeful uh, for the future that we can actually achieve uh, what we say we want to achieve in that regard? I'm a half full guy. So, so I think we've gotten better, but I don't think we're nearly as good as we need. And I'll give you an example of that. I think that um, when you look across our industry right now, you see a lot of convergence between the CSO position and the CISO position. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. And in many cases, it makes perfect sense for a particular company. But in some cases, it's because the chief security officer has maybe not done a good job articulating the value that their organization brings to the company. And so, the natural question is, well, how do you articulate that value? And different companies have different cultures and different ways of doing things. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to measure things. You've got to be able to take something, measure it, and quantify what what is it doing for you. Because hmm. um, you're making an investment in something, right? You're making a people investment in something. You're buying software for something. you got physical brick and mortar. You've got capital assets that you've purchased. And so if you're a CEO sitting wherever you're sitting, you want to be able to sit down with your chief security officer and feel like whatever percentage of total revenue he or she is, the CEO is spending on security in that company, that you're being a good steward of that. And so one of the things that, that we did in about the 2010 timeframe, we went out and, and contracted with the Security Executive Council to have them come in and help teach us how to put together a suite of value metrics that would help us tell the story. And, and they sent two really senior, tenured, retired CSOs, and they spent many months with my team. And, um, and I always remember the debrief. So we, we all pack into the room and um, sit down, and uh, I, I won't repeat the names to protect the guilty, <laughs> but... Uh, but the, the statement was basically, you've got an incredible organization with incredible stories, but you suck at telling them. That was mm -hmm. the executive 
And then we got into the detail behind it. And the reality was they were true. Uh, we didn't have 30-second elevator pitches at a moment's notice, whether it was myself or anybody on my leadership team. If we had exposure to a senior executive where we could talk about the value proposition that our organization brought. And so for the next two years, we went down a journey of creating for each of our 23 services at least one, in several cases, two, maybe three value metrics. And we had a, a complete deck where if someone wanted to sit down and talk about our fire department, and mm -hmm. Boeing has the private fire department in the United States, if someone wanted to talk about our fire department and why we spent X amount of dollars on it each year, I could go through and talk about the number of emergency responses that we had each year. That's interesting, but it doesn't tell you anything, right? That's counting. You're counting numbers. What I would then do is say out of those responses, X percentage were significant cardiac events. And out of those significant cardiac events, X percentage of those people survived 70% or more because our firefighters were able to get to them within three minutes or less. And if you can do that, you have a 70% survival rate. If we didn't have a fire department going and our local municipalities were responding and their average response time is six to nine minutes, you're at about a 40% survival rate. So think about all those conversations we don't have to have or EAP organization doesn't have to have because their colleague may have suffered an event but they came back to work two weeks later versus all those people are going to a memorial service. Those yeah. were powerful. Those were powerful. And not everything was as you know sexy as that, but everything had something that if, if a CEO sat down, and I had this opportunity in front of our CEO and his leadership team numerous times where we picked three or four services. I'd have 35, 40 minutes on his leadership team calendar, and I would zip through these things I would tell him what his investment was and what his return was on that investment. And most of the time, I would never get through all the charts. I might only have six PowerPoint slides. I would get through number three because there would be so much dialogue in the leadership team about what we were doing. And there would be praise on something that was happening in this part of the organization. And every time I walked out of there, it was a win every single time because we could tell our story. And so um, I think that it's gotten better, Mike, because we've talked about this a lot and, and a lot of the, um, the organizational meetings we've gone to, we've all seen presentations on this. I think people have, have understood the importance of, of having metrics and being able to quantify the value. But I still think that there are CSOs out there that don't do that as well as they could. There are some CSOs that still don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. And, and, that don't do it at all are the ones that get absorbed. The ones that don't do it really well are the ones that get replaced. Um, the ones that do it well, um, I think they have earned the trust and respect of their CEOs and, and their peer leaders organization. So I think we can do better, clearly, especially in this environment when you start to see downsizing and everything get looks at hard. If you can't effectively defend your organization and why it's there and why the amount of money you're given every year is the appropriate amount of money, you're asking to be picked off. Yeah. Yep. No, you're 100% right. And I love this is brilliant. Uh, the, uh, 
you know, the, the things that you're able to, to pick and to show the, the C-suite, you know, the value add. And I think that whether it's our industry or any industry, if you're not in the quote mainstream, like you're not sales or this or that, you know, it's incumbent upon leaders to be able to tell that, tell that story. I mean, we could go on for a long time, the two of us, right? Because yeah. we can. There's a lot more to uh, to unravel. Maybe we'll bring you back. But uh, it's been, you know, we're friends. We're great friends and uh, family. But it it's been wonderful to watch your career because I remember the first time we met, we talked about it. You're sort of this outlier, and what you have done with your career, with your organization, with your peers, uh, the the people you've touched and influenced, um, your 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 leadership growth, but not more more important than that, what you've been able to give back to leaders that are coming up. You know, you're mentoring them, you're teaching them best practices. And I think you're somebody that a lot of folks coming up uh, in our industry, especially can look up to. In fact, I personally think there's a book in there somewhere, but that's on, that's on you, you know. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, um, you know, I appreciate you being transparent honest and open about uh, your journey uh, and the things that made you and your team world-class in terms of leadership in, in our industry. And uh, I guess if there's one final question, so what's our future for Dave Commandant? Well, I, I, I can't let all those uh, platitudes and accolades go by without a comment here. And I think the folks that listen to your podcast already know this. There's there's not really anyone in the industry that was more giving and willing to help young people. And, and you're still doing that. I see it today um, in their careers and, and would spend as much time as necessary helping to mentor and bounce ideas off of. And, and you were a role model for me. Um, I, I, you know, I never really felt like I was a peer of yours. I felt like I had this opportunity to work with a legend and, and to glean knowledge from a legend and and you've always been very, very, very gracious with not only people like myself, but, but anyone who's ever come to you and asked for help. So I think we all owe you a debt of gratitude for your willingness to, to find time to help people. It just says a lot about you and the type of leader you are. Uh, for me personally right now, you know, uh, after I retired, I, I really gave some time and thought about what did I want to do. And... Did I want to go back and, and go out and become a CSO again at a different company, do something different, a different team, different challenge? Did I just want to not do anything? And I ended up settling initially, uh, and I won't say settling, but I, I decided initially, because it wasn't settling, it was intentional, mm -hmm. that I wanted to work in an advisory board position in a role with companies that I found interesting. And I've been able to do that. I'm working with um, several different companies right now in an advisory board role, <clears throat> different levels of engagement for different, some really, really, uh, they're in their infancy and so very involved. And that's super exciting because I feel like I've got a, a voice or a hand in, in what may be to come. Others are more mature companies and, and they're really looking for kind of a sounding board on strategies that they want to employ or or uh, something they want to do different in their marketplace. And that's fun, too, because it's a completely different set of challenges. But I, I really find that rewarding. Um, it's thoughtful work, but it's, it's different work. Mm -hmm. And 
create some flexibility for me, which is what I wanted to do. I, you know, I worked full time for 36 years plus. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to have some flexibility in my life and do some things that I wasn't able to do during these past 36 years. As you know, I've been dealing with this uh, shoulder injury and repair and re-repair and, and kind of at the point now where that's all behind me. And so, um, you know, staying engaged in the community, um, staying engaged in some of these organizations, doing some of this advisory board work is exactly where I wanted to be. It's exactly my space uh, where I think I, I can continue to add a little bit of value. And uh, and I'm having a heck of a lot of fun, Mike. I got to be honest with you, it's, it's a lot of fun. So that's what I'm going to be doing, at least for the foreseeable future. At some point, I'll probably wake up one day and say, yeah, I don't want to do that. I, I just want to do X, Y, and Z from now on. But um, I don't see that in the near term. So I, I think you're stuck with me for a while longer. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, you know, we worked so hard over the years to get to the point, as you said, you can do what you want to do and still make a contribution. So, uh, well, I, I, again, I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate the words that you you just you said about me. And uh, um, I'm... I, I think we've been very blessed in this industry to have you as 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 one of our our, our major leaders. So uh, thanks for for uh, taking the time out of your still busy day, but more flexible uh, to uh, uh, to talk to us. It was a real pleasure and and uh, an honor, Mike. And I I just appreciate getting a chance to spend some time with you today. So thank you. Awesome. Well, that's all we have today for uh, the Ronin Leadership Podcast. Uh, if you like, and I know you will, uh, like or love what, what you have seen and heard today, please uh, hit the like button and also the subscribe button. Also, as a reminder, I do a weekly uh, leadership blog on LinkedIn, and we've got a lot of subscribers of that, and there'll be a link to that on uh, on this on this uh, on this 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 video. Uh, and, you know, please make sure to go to my website, www.mikehowardauthor.com. It'll tell you all about me, Ronan Leadership. If you want to purchase the books, you can get it from there. You can get it from Amazon. But really appreciate all your comments, feedback, and support. It just makes this podcast better. So until next time, uh, please keep being uh, great leaders and keep practicing great leadership principles and continue to mentor others that are coming up behind you. Mike Howard, out. I'm going to stop the recording now. Let's see. Let's see.